Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 47 of Cage Rage, the Nicolas Cage podcast. Hope you're well, hope your week's been good. You know, it's still getting sunny, the days are still getting a little bit brighter, it's all good to go. As you've probably seen from the title of the episode, that we're doing things a little differently this week. We've got a nice special episode to throw into the mix in the wake of the uh, the one-year anniversary last week that's right we're talking about vampires kiss the musical uh new york based stand-up comedian kevin frolich's joined me for a really fun episode recorded this one a few months back where we are talking all about his vision for a musical adaptation of arguably the cagiest of the cage films vampires kiss uh this was such a fun conversation to have with kevin uh we talk about sort of his background and getting into stand-up we talk about some of the challenges faced in putting this together the writing process the musical process what's next for the musical as well um hopefully in the uh post-pandemic world when as and when we get there and of course there's some conversation about uh vampire's kiss in the mix as well uh, Kevin was very gracious with this time and, um, like I said, really fun conversation. Hope you enjoy it as well. Just with the admin to get that out of the way. Now, of course, if you want to read the script, Kevin's updating it all the time. Uh, if you want to listen to the demos that are recorded for this as well, the links to all of those will be in the descriptions wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Uh, and you can find all Kevin's socials down there as well. Mine will also be down there, but as usual, if you want to find me on Twitter, it's at cage underscore podcast again on Twitter at cage rage pod on Instagram. And you can listen to this in all the usual places where you get your podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Deezer, Podchaser, tuned in, iHeartRadio. If you're listening to it anywhere, we can give it a rating, i.e. Apple, i.e. Podchaser. Please do. Please feel to give it a rating. Leave a little comment if you enjoy it as well. Share it around with people you think might like it. Um, it really helps the podcast grow, and I'll really appreciate you forevermore. But with all that said, let's get into it. It's episode 47, Vampire's Kiss the Musical. Hope you enjoy it. ta so the journey to True Cage Nirvana, it comes in many shapes and forms. And today we're doing things a little bit differently, but still really, really exciting. As today I'm joined by stand-up and sketch comedian Kevin Frolix, as we're going to talk all about not just Vampire's Kiss, but Vampire's Kiss, the musical. You heard that right. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I am great, Daryl. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for uh, saying my name right. Honestly, I've I've grown so used to hearing it said wrong that <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed. Honestly, I was so worried about getting it wrong um, because I, one, what a terrible way to start things off. It's like <laughs> Kevin from hey, welcome to the <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Um, so I um, 
honestly, I was doing I've since research ahead of the recording today, and I was finding a bunch of your stand-up clips, and I was like, there's got to be one where someone's bringing him on. And I was like, that's what I'm going to go with. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I found a lot of your stand-up albums on Spotify, which I've loved, by the way. Um, oh, thank you. But I was like, right, so there's got to be a, a sweet introduction in here, which I played back about a hundred times to make sure I had it down. <laughs> Um, otherwise, I just would have cancelled today out of shame. So, it's uh, <laughs> it's the the least I can do. Least I yeah, can. Luckily, do. luckily, both of the stand up albums I have floating around out there are hosted. Like the shows were hosted by close friends of mine, so they they knew it. It wasn't any of that awkwardness where someone's like, "How do you say your name again?" Okay, because if it's a show where I've never met them before, that it's like five times that we have to practice <laughs> together, and then they usually are like, usually it's Kevin Frolics, and uh, which is you know way more jaunty and whimsical. I don't hate it. It's been what every teacher called me. So even, <laughs> I mean, I've been, you know, people that I like worked with or were friends with for years, just never got it right. So, <laughs> so I appreciate your commitment to, to the effort. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, for a while it was 50 50 between Frolix and Frolix. And I was like, one's a lot more um, the sound of music than the other. So I'm going to assume it's the other one. And I'm glad it paid off. So um, as far as I'm concerned, we've hit a high point we've hit the ground running this is it <laughs> this is the start <laughs> of a beautiful friendship man um but that being said obviously you've got a bunch of um albums out on spotify now and um you have obviously the background in comedy and uh sketch comedy um so tell me a bit about that how did you get started in um in stand-up and all things uh, hilarity yeah so uh i mean as like a uh, a, as a small child let's go way back I just like was was obsessed with comedy uh like as a you know awkward middle schooler uh, I was you know obsessed with Mel Brooks a friend of mine uh his family loved Monty Python and and Woody Allen back when it was okay to like Woody Allen but they <laughs> uh you know they, they really introduced me to a lot of you know the more slapsticky Woody Allen or those early comedies of his and just like all of Monty Python's Flank Circus, Holy Grail, Life of Brian, like that's yeah. kind of what shaped me during the most vulnerable time <laughs> of your adolescent mind forming. Um, and then, you know, like my, my parents, you know, they grew up loving Mel Brooks and, mm -hmm. you know, Animal House, all the National Lampoon stuff. So that was kind of the stuff that we had. So a lot of different comedy films were kind of entering my brain all at that same time and then uh you know snl is and is and was like a huge institution uh at yeah. least over over here in, in the u.s and and i grew, grew up you know in the 90s so i had like the chris farley will ferrell uh that those two like big eras of snl and um and always always really really loved all of that kind of stuff and um you know in middle school and high school when most people were going out you know having parties in the woods and, and I grew up in New Hampshire so there was a lot of woods parties I was right. not invited to them but I heard a lot about them they sounded like a lot of fun <laughs> um and and my Friday nights were usually spent watching Comedy Central uh they would have like Friday night stand-up they would just show all these Comedy Central like half half hour stand-up specials and I would just watch and absorb them uh all the time yeah. um for a while the main part of my personality was just quoting stand-up bits that I heard <laughs> um which came in handy but I remember distinctly like these memories of being on the school bus as like a seventh and eighth grader and 
it was a small town. So the high schoolers were also on the bus and the high schoolers, you know, would just, you know, bully beat up the, the middle school kids. It's the, the rite of passage. Um, of course. And somebody had just like mentioned a stand-up comedian and I could like recite all of it. So they didn't beat me up because they were like, oh, this kid knows all of the right. stand-up specials. I was like, well, this is a very useful survival skill. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so it kind of internalized it, but just always loved it and did not know it was a thing you could do um, in, in rural New Hampshire where I was growing up. Just, there was no concept of like, oh, how do you, how do you get on TV? I just assumed, you know, they pick someone off the street and they're like, do you have 30 minutes? Great. Like go do this. <laughs> um, but then in college, uh, I had a, a friend of mine that I had gone to school with. We happened to go to the same college, but we'd actually known each other since, uh, you know, about seventh grade. So about since we were like 12 years old and, um, uh, didn't, weren't really close friends until college, but I happened to run into him. He was like, oh, I'm starting this sketch comedy group, really just making like bland conversation like in the quad of the university or whatever and and he uh, he was like oh i'm going to i'm actually going to set up a table we're you know trying to find members for this new club and honestly like we knew each other but we weren't that close and i was just being polite like oh what's the club and he was like it's a sketch comedy group and i was like oh sign me up and so um none of us had any there was no formal training maybe a couple of us had done some theater in high school at the very most we really just kind of made it up as we went along and for you know three and a half years of college like all I did twice a week was like meet with these you know group of other comedy obsessed nerds and we would just write sketches based on I mean we would literally like watch like movies like Airplane or watch SNL sketches and um, somebody actually somebody had also like introduced me to like uh, a bit of Fry and Laurie and like all these other like you know sketch sketch groups that I hadn't really heard of before um and just like we like dissected them to try to figure out like how to write a sketch um and figured it out trial and error for like three and a half years and then when I graduated from school it was you know very sad because I was like oh I don't have this group anymore and it's harder to find like adult weirdos it's so much easier (laughs) when you're in school to find the weirdos and and in adulthood it was harder so that was when I kind of switched to stand up there was believe it or not like a I mean at least at least at the, at the time, it was like every bar in the middle of nowhere seemed to have a comedy night. So I just mm. found those, uh, a lot of like, you know, bowling alleys and dive bars and, you know, Irish pubs that had music on Friday night and comedy on Wednesday night, like those types of places. And that was what I did for like a year. And, um, and then oddly enough, that same friend who pulled me into his sketch group in college, you know, we became very, very close friends because of that. And um, maybe a year after we both graduated, uh, we both graduated from college 2010, which was like peak recession years um, <laughs> after like the housing market crash. So yeah. both of us, for the most part, were unemployed and, and just kind of bouncing around from like temporary jobs. Um, and then he kind of had a chance to move to New York for a job. And he was like, I need a roommate. Do you, would you be interested in moving? And I was like, well, I guess I can be unemployed anywhere. Let's be unemployed <laughs> in the most difficult place to be unemployed. Um, yeah. But it ended up working out like I, I really wanted to go somewhere where I could do comedy all the time. Um, and New York, like when I first moved here, it was, you know, a lot of open mic nights, but you're able to do like, you know, 15 to 20 a week, really. And if you wow. don't have steady employment, it's even easier to do more than that. <laughs> um, but but the nice thing was that it was also, you know, more job opportunities, not great jobs, at, at least in the beginning. But, mm. you know, I was at least able to pay the rent and um, feed myself. And, and so and that was, that was 2011. So we're going on like to, uh, a full 10 years of, of being in the city, kind of doing stand up and, and sketch. And, and then, you know, about five years of just doing stand up, I met some other people that were doing sketch and kind of got pulled back into that world. And I've always definitely, even my stand up, if, if you listen to any of it, it's very like long form story based. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just because I always love that about sketches. You can, 
you know, you can tell you had to be their story and people will be there because of it. And um, so, so I kind of got pulled into that. And then we had the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater here, which unfortunately just closed down in New York because of the pandemic. But I was able to, you know, take a couple writing classes through there. Um, never really did the improv thing, but loved taking sketch classes. It was always really helpful for me to have deadlines and assignments. So that really <laughs> kind of forced me to, to improve. And then actually, because of that, got a chance to write for some of their house teams and did that for 2019. And up until the city kind of shut down earlier this year. Um, but, yeah. we, you know, you're writing like, you know, sometimes three, four, five sketches every month, at least three every month that you then pare down to like everybody's bringing in like one sketch that you then do for like a half hour show every month. So kind of kind of rigorous, but that's kind of always been, uh, you know, what I was interested in and, and even having like a full-time day job. It was, that's that's been the, the biggest thing I've noticed is it's weird to have free time again because I'm used to just, you know, you get up, you take the train, yeah. go to work, eight hours of work, you leave, maybe eat something on your way to like a sketch meeting or a rehearsal. And then 11 o'clock at night, you come back, go to sleep immediately, get up, do it all again. And that's kind of been <laughs> the life for the last few years. Um, so it's weird to have time to like enjoy a cup of coffee and, <laughs> yeah, you know, read a book leisurely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because um, I think we have, have sort of a brief chat before the record. Uh, from from my perspective, from the outside looking in New York is obviously this hustling, bustling place. And um now I think again from my British perspective I just look at um New York in December and just think like Home Alone 2 as like oh it must be like mad and everyone thinks like the ideal place to enjoy it somewhere like Christmas is New York because you get all the uh all the snow and then sort of Times Square and all the lights uh going on but I guess now like you said with it now just being almost like a hard reset on New York and um I guess I guess like with New York as, as it's been in the uh the UK as well um comedy has just kind of stopped comedy just kind yeah. of like ceased to exist um so I, I was going to ask you about uh, certainly about the new york comedy scene but um you know how how is it for yourselves as well i guess over there when with uh the the struggling artist trying to <laughs> find what to what to do next with all this free time that you've got as well yeah i mean you know for the people that you know, stand-up is like, that's their thing. That's the thing that they are pursuing. They, that's what they're putting all their eggs in the stand-up basket. Yeah. There's um, up until, I mean, honestly, it's probably still happening because, because, you know, comedians are notoriously uh, insane masochists. So there's still yeah, people like doing shows on the roof, even though it's raining and, you know, starting to snow a little bit and, and getting pretty cold and windy. Um, but there were a lot of, you know, online Zoom shows, uh, which, I mean, they just aren't the same, but, you know, if, if, if you're, it, it, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but it really is an addiction, you know, standing in front of people, doing jokes, getting that immediate response of people laughing at it. And, um, and even with, with the sketch thing, like we've done, some, I've done some like video sketches, and it's um, a lot of fun to make them, but just, you know, it's not the same as doing it live and getting like audience responses right away. And, and you know, when a, when a line you, you're really proud of gets like that huge laugh, like the, there's no, there's no drug as good as, as good <laughs> as that. So, um, and I'll be honest, like the kind of the few months leading up to the pandemic, even I'd kind of like not entirely stopped doing stand-up but it became less of a focus as and part of it was just because the UCB sketch routine was just so grueling and um you know I've I you know had a huge stage with a 200 plus seat theater every month and it's like well I'm gonna probably focus more on that than the bar shows with five people in there and um and it was also after a point of doing like stand-up for about 10 years and and kind of feeling 
you know, plateauing a little bit and, and being more, I mean, you, sometimes you got to like follow what you're being more drawn to instead of forcing yourself to do this thing just because you've always kind of done it. So yeah. um, oddly enough, now I've been kind of feeling the urge to, to do more of it. And I've been thinking of in like stand up brain more. Um, but a lot of people who have done sketch, they're doing a lot more video shows. People who do stand up have been doing a lot more Zoom shows, which is kind of live, not really. There's been drive in movie theaters that have converted into like stand up venues where people are literally in their cars. And if yeah. they're laughing, they're instructed to flick their lights on and off so <laughs> the comedian can know that they're laughing in the cars. Um, and, and depending on, you know, the politics of the particular state and what regulations and, you know, what lockdown procedures there are. There are even some indoor and outdoor shows, which I have no desire to be inside a, <laughs> you know, 50 square foot <laughs> cube comedy club uh, with, with other people. Um, some people are doing it, but um, for, for me, like, I'm, I'm totally content to just get the weird idea to write a Vampire's Kiss musical and dedicate <laughs> a couple months to that. So uh, yeah, that's, that's honestly, that's, that's what happened for me is the, the, you know, I have my sketch group from UCB, we still keep in touch and we, you know, we'll still write things. And um, really it's more just that we enjoy hanging out. So it's like, let's just read some stupid things for old time's sake. And <laughs> if we have an idea to like film some of it, great. If not, like, it's more just to like, you know, keep it, keep up with it. But um, I'd actually, a friend showed me, me and my, some, some of my closer friends, we've uh, started like a, a weekly like Zoom movie night where we're all logging to Zoom just like this and we'll watch a movie together. And somebody was like, have you guys seen Vampire's Kiss? And I hadn't even heard of it before this summer. Um, and we watched it and it just it just embedded itself in my soul in a way that yeah. few movies can. And I, I was thinking about it for like weeks and then kind of had the idea of um, writing a musical. I just, I just wanted like a creative project and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to write like you know, one of the big Broadway trends that it, sometimes they're good, most of the time they're awful, is they'll turn a movie from the 80s or 90s into a musical and just kind of cash out on people's nostalgia for um, for a film that they loved from a while back. Uh, Beetlejuice was probably the most recent example of that. Yeah. Um, which I've heard it was good. Some of my friends absolutely hated it. Some of my friends absolutely loved it, but it, it kind of just like banked on, hey, people know Beetlejuice, they'll come see Beetlejuice the musical. Um, and and so I actually put a poll on my like social media and just like, hey, nominate some movies that you would want to see a musical adaptation of, especially if it's like a bad 80s musical. And uh, Short Circuit was one of the front runners, specifically Short Circuit 2, which right. I will go on record as saying Short Circuit 2 is the, uh, better is the better of the two short circuits. Uh, <laughs> it's funnier. You got Michael McKean in it. Uh, it takes place in New York, so you can have New York as a character, just like Vampire's Kiss. But then uh, a friend of mine nominated Vampire's Kiss, and it, you know, the 150 people that responded to this thing, like it just immediately, once Vampire's Kiss was on the table, it, it beat out short circuits. So, um, which I was excited about because I was like, oh, that really is perfect. And especially since, you know, American Psycho was just recently a, a musical, uh, actually both in the UK and the US. It started in the, um, in the UK with, I think, I think his name is Matt Smith. I think he was one of the, the Doctor yes. Who's played yeah. Patrick Bateman. And then it came over here and uh, uh, actor named Benjamin Walker, who played Andrew Jackson in a punk rock musical called the Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. Right. Um, yeah, and, and honestly, like I saw that one as far as movie musicals go, it was fantastic. It was not popular. It bombed very, very hard over here. Uh, it only lasted like, I think like 40 performances, which is, you know, only a few weeks. And um, and I think really 
you know, just because it's uh, it's very violent. It's very cynical. Mm-hmm. It's not like, uh, honey, let's go to New York and see a great musical. Let's take the kids. It's, you know, a bunch of people that are going to resonate with American Psycho. Basically, everybody who was going to enjoy an American Psycho musical saw it and enjoyed it. And then that was it. <laughs> um, but so so I, I kind of liked the idea of uh, uh, doing something like that, where it's just here's this like 80s consumerism, just like bizarre character, very surreal. You don't know what's happening, if it's real, if it's not. Um, and and also, but the, the nice thing about Vampire's Kids is it's just so ridiculous, whereas American Psycho actually feels like it has something to say. Yeah. Uh, if, if Vampire's Kiss does, it is very much under the surface of Nicolas <laughs> Cage being absolutely insane. And just, mm-hmm. I mean, that whole movie is mostly about it's mostly about a, a young woman trying to find a file. That's the main drama of the of the movie. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, similar for me, it was only um, when I started this podcast earlier this year, which I, so I rediscovered Vampire's Kiss because I remember I'd watched it maybe ten years ago because I think uh, me and a bunch of friends back home from where I live in a sort of middle of England. Uh, we discovered, like many a Cage fan does, the clip on YouTube: Nicolas Cage losing his shit. Um, (laughs) one of the all-time not just cage videos but the greatest videos on the internet if I may be so bold Um, (laughs) and part of the joy of doing this podcast has just been um, in the same vein as that sort of Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's still got the the beer and he's like pointing at the tv it's like Mm -hmm. oh I recognize that scream now this is this is from that clip where he screams Um, so going back to it but this time to watch it as an actual film and not just as uh the ship that sailed a thousand memes <laughs> it's it was um genuinely fascinating and also in the sense that when i'd finished it and the credits were rolling even though as you said the plot is as thin as the paper that they're looking for um <laughs> it, when i came away from it i was expecting to just write it off and be like, this was ridiculous. I can understand why it's been panned. But I found myself thinking, I didn't hate that. There's something so absurd about it that you kind of have to enjoy it and doing more research into it. It's one of the films that uh, Cage holds on a very high pedestal for his work as well. He's put it in his top five films. Um, One of those films that, uh, well, I think we could potentially use this loosely uh, that sort of pushed him as an actor, quote unquote, obviously, obviously I'm, I'm air quoting at Kevin here, but for the listener air quotes pushed him as an actor. Um, so it, it's always interesting to discuss that one as well, because it's when we talk about Nicolas Cage as an actor, um, I always like to categorize his films as there are films that Nicolas Cage is in, and there are Nicolas Cage films. This is <laughs> the arguably the epitome of the Nicolas Cage film. Um, so when you go into that for the first time and then you come out of it on the other side, for, for, for one, you're not the same person as you were before you started that film. You can't go back. There's only pre and post Vampire's Kiss. But yes. when, but when you, you see that and... Um, as you said, obviously this year for a lot of people in the creative industries, we've had to find ways to keep ourselves busy. Otherwise we would have gone insane. A lot of people have um, gone to Zoom gigs, as you mentioned, a lot of people are now, uh, they they stream on Twitch and take shows there. But for you, this was the world needs to see Vampire's Kiss in musical form. Um, <laughs> what what was sort of, um, I know you've mentioned sort of the voting poll, but 
I have a feeling as well, maybe there was part of you that wanted Vampire's Kiss to win. Uh, what was the process for you to say, uh, right, well, this is it. This is the film that I, that I want to express in the form of a musical. Once Vampire's Kiss was on the table, it was, it immediately just clicked. And I was just like, I hope this one wins. And <laughs> I, I do suspect that a couple of my friends who were very, very much obsessed with this film voted multiple times. I, I, I definitely have my suspicions and I am okay with that. Um, you know, it's a, it, you've probably been hearing about the rigged election happening over here. This is what they're talking about. It's the Vampire's <laughs> Kiss ballot stuffing. Um, but I, I mean, just, just thinking about it, it's, uh, I mean, so this isn't, uh, I should mention, this isn't the first time I've, I've written a musical. Uh, a friend of mine who's uh, a frequent writing partner of mine, we wrote a, um, a musical comedy about Lewis and Clark, where it, it was called Great Frontier, a poorly researched musical about Lewis and Clark, where we were going to tell the story of Lewis and Clark discovering, quote, air quotes, <laughs> discovering the Pacific Ocean. Um, but we were going to do no research outside of what we remember learning about that in, you know, middle school, elementary school, whenever you learn about Lewis and Clark. And we, you know, just tried to create these characters and we tried to do it as bare bones as possible so that we could do it on, you know, next to no budget, um, minimal costumes, minimal props, everything like that. Um, and the thing with Vampire's Kiss was like, all right, most of this is, you know, it's not very, it, it seemed very easy to adapt to stage. Most of it takes place in either an office or an apartment. So it's like, yeah. okay, it's not as like fantastical where we need to think about like, you know, it, it, it's a it's a small contained story, even as a I mean, even watching it as a movie, it almost feels like a play in some scenes, especially the therapy scenes. It's like, well, this just, you know, this seems like Frost Nixon. It's just two people sitting across <laughs> from each other talking. There's so many like yeah. moments that felt like it just felt like it, it would very much work on stage and, you know, even better, a very small stage, which is, you know, if and when I'm able to do anything with this, it'll be a small a small uh, production, which I yeah. think you need to, I mean, the nice thing about Vampire's Kiss as a movie is you're seeing every facial expression and every detail, <laughs> which, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to see a few larger musicals living in New York and it's, you know, they kind of have to go big with it. There's big dance numbers. There's people sometimes flying from, you know, harnesses, yeah, in, you know, going over the audience. And it's like, well, yeah, you got to make it good for the cheap seats. But when it's like <laughs> an intimate, you know, thing like that, you can really kind of focus on the, on the actors and and also i mean nicholas cage just goes so big in that mm -hmm. movie i i i think I've, I've i mean there's there was that article i think on, on on the ringer uh was that did like a whole like analysis of like vampires kiss the film and and there's also like the the dvd commentary where yeah. like just and and even just interviews where he talks about it and it's like yeah he's for better or worse challenging and pushing himself as an actor with every motion like yeah. the the alphabet scene is just so big and ridiculous and not just like in the way he says it but like his body language like his arms are like out akimbo just doing yeah. these and honestly <laughs> that that scene just reminds me like he's going full like mick jagger in the start me up video from early <laughs> yes. 80s where he's like in yes. like the the leotard and just like arms like jutting out and everything um but the other thing that really fascinates me about Vampire's Kiss, the movie that I thought would be so fun to adapt to a stage thing is that everybody else in that movie is in a very grounded movie. <laughs> like Alva's in this movie about just a young woman trying to make it in the city. Even Rachel, she's a vampire, but she plays it whether, I mean, she's a vampire, whether she exists or not, we can debate that for hours, but 
yeah. you know, uh, I don't think she's real. I, I mean, when she is real, it's like, this is just a woman he met at a bar one time and she's not actually a vampire. None of this really happened, but you know, when she's a vampire, she's this like very realistic temptress, even though she's a mythological beast, she's very <laughs> much grounded in the rules of like, I am a vampire. I come over, I bite your neck. Like it's, it's yeah. very much like to the rules. She's not doing anything that big. And then when, you know, every time you see her, she just seems like a normal young woman in the city. Even when he meets her in the club, it's like, well, this is just a normal 20 something young, attractive woman in the city. She's out for a good time nothing that weird here all the executives are just these you know awful you know 1980s executive types like everybody's very grounded in these archetypes that they're that they're in and then here comes Nicolas Cage with this like bulldozer wrecking ball personality <laughs> yes just just breaking down the reality of it and and something like that I thought would be very very fun where here's a very normal story I really focus on the looking for a document the whole time but then um, just like having these moments where the Nicolas Cage character is just like breaking the reality of it. Um, I thought it'd be really fun to have like, there's very few blackouts in the scene. There's very few like scene transitions. It's more just like the lights will go down on one side of the stage and come up on the other. And, you know, the Peter Lowe character just kind of walks from one to the other, whether he's covered in blood or not, like just kind of goes about things normally. I have one scene where like when the bat first shows up, he's uh, you know, having sex with Jackie, the bat comes in and he just immediately walks over to the therapy session to talk about how the bat really made him horny. And then <laughs> he leaves the appointment and just like, as he walks across to go yell at Alva again, he's like putting his suit back on and it's just, there, there's no barriers to it. And, it. and everybody's being very normal, even though the way we are getting to things is not normal at all. Um, and so that's what I, that's what I really liked about the the movie and especially watching it the second time, um, I don't know how many times you put yourself through Vampire's Kiss. I thought I was going to have to watch it about six or seven times. I watched it a second time to as research for this, and I took like 15 pages of notes about things that stood out to me <laughs> that should be. And the thing that like, I, just like every every little detail about like the weirdness of what, like trying to figure out like why why is Peter Lowe, if he's hallucinating this, like what is it? And just picking up like, oh, this is actually a story about like a guy looking for love in the city. And he just, for whatever reason he's like emotionally stunted even when he's happy he can't really express it well like i think you know when when he's like walking back to his apartment the first time with jackie in the beginning of the movie he, and he, his laugh is very much like a fake like ha 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 like he's reading the words ha off of a page and then even when he's crying he does like a, a weird boohoo type yes. of cry the <laughs> the boohoo is like how he pronounces it and it's like and and yeah, and then every time, like, I noticed that every time his vampire symptoms, air quotes again, symptoms get worse, <laughs> uh, like, it's usually in the presence of somebody who is happy in a loving relationship, like, the big one is, like, in the diner, and these people are talking about, like, a date that, I think, I think it's, like, a girl's talking about a date she went on, and she's, like, oh, I really like this guy, or whatever, and then he just, like, grabs his neck and starts yelling at nobody, and, like, you know, starts holding it clutching at the bandage on his neck and he does like a weird like ha, 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 like like it's painting him <laughs> and every time he like sees a, a couple or even when he calls his therapist and she's like on a hot date with this like young bronze muscular guy like yeah and he like hears that she's like on a date like that like freaks him out more so um and that's such like a, I mean, it's like a cliche uh like new york rom-com type of thing where it's like just looking for love in the wrong places it, it comes <laughs> up in a lot of those movies and and in broadway there's always like a kind of ham-fisted love story and this is i mean there's no need for it to be like a 
a big dramatic love story in most of these cases but this one it's like well we can I, I also I love making fun of just like those types of tropes where New York is a character in the film and and yes. we're all just looking for love because they're just so cliche and uh I've always liked making fun of those so and this and Vampire's Kiss does it perfectly where at the very end of the movie and at the very end of the musical uh uh, he's just like, oh, I just want to find someone who would love me. And then the doctor's like, oh, what a coincidence. I have this woman, Sharon, who's going to fall in love with you. And then boom, happy ending. Or is it? Yeah. It's fake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, as you touched upon there, there's just uh, even the most academic and professional of us could write thesis after thesis, paper after paper on what this film is, what it represents, you know, is is it um, a, a giant conversation on the tropes of sort of a, of cinema in that era? Is it just um, an incredibly surreal piece of cinema that made no sense in the eighties? That makes no sense now. Um, it's, I mean, I, I'm someone I I love surreal and I love sort of surreal comedy. Um, but even watching this, there were just times when you're just taken aback by everything, like right at the start where it's very much an animatronic bat that's attacking him. Um, and then he has, he gets aroused by it. Uh, yeah. And then he's chasing, he's chasing the pigeon around later <laughs> on. Um, it just goes from um, a quotable moment to quotable moment to quotable moment. And um as you mentioned there with the dvd commentary um sort of side note this is one of those cage films that the second it gets a blu-ray release hopefully it gets a blu-ray release um i'll be all over it but when i sort of listen to the commentary for this and it seems to be one of the few films that cage does a commentary on because he's quite big from what i've seen of um almost as like treating the films as his children he will um, sort of he will make them and then he will let them out into the world and he doesn't really stop to look back on much of his work he's very much a uh, forward thinking um onto the next project kind of guy for better or worse <laughs> but even with this one listening to the commentary and the um uh the director uh, robert beerman it very much seemed like they had a script um, but they didn't really know what they were doing. They were just young people making a film. There was one clip where there was um, a mime outside of the apartment buildings and the, uh, the director says, we just felt like putting a mime in there. I have no idea why is there. And you could kind of tell. So when you, when you sort of go into that, trying to make, and even if you can make sense of this, uh, when you try to, relay in stage form some kind of form of sense of this film and you, you've touched on it a fair bit there but what were some of the challenges for you in trying to make sense of the nonsensical and again try and make it make sense because when you talk about it it's like it's like we both know what we're talking about but it's such a hard film in sense to describe and what was the challenge for you with that yeah, no, good, good question. So like I said, I, I watched it a second time, I took 15 pages of notes about everything <laughs> that stood out to me as this is so weird, it must be in and like, yeah. I didn't, I just like wrote it down, I was watching the movie, I was enjoying it, I was finding layers that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and then just, I literally like sat down and just like, poured a cup of coffee and just like three hours later, I had written, not all the songs, but I basically written like, 
all, a, at least a rough outline of like every single scene just like in this manic episode <laughs> every now and then like if you if you pursue anything creatively you get those weird manic energy bursts where mm. you really got to take advantage of them and unfortunately i use this one on vampire's kiss <laughs> um but the the big the challenging thing was so the first the first draft that i wrote it was very uh, it was very dark. I really like dug into some of the like themes that I thought were underneath the craziness of it. Like, like I said, like noticing that every time his like vampire symptoms flare up, it's usually in the presence of seeing people in love or seeing some sort of, you know, relationship going well, or, you know, any sort of him being uncomfortable with showing real emotions. Uh, and, and I kind of put all of that in there. Um, and it probably, I mean, this is, meant to be a one-act musical it's it's about 40 pages of script so probably less than an hour of actual like stage time which i think is enough um I, it did not need to be a maybe someday if it if it really takes off it'll become a full two and a half hour you know intermission and overtures yeah. and everything like that full full symphonic orchestra in front. uh but that's not the 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 dream i have for this one but the the hardest part was making it uh, and to try to make sense of it was to remove a lot of the like weirdness from the movie because, you know, maybe it would be fun for people who have seen the movie, but unless you like not only saw it, but really retained some of those details, oh, yeah. um, it might not be fun. So I'd, I'd shown it to some friends of mine who, you know, they're theater people or they at the very least are just obsessed with Vampire's Kiss, the, the, the movie. <laughs> and whether they had seen the movie a bunch or only read it as like it's standalone theater piece like everybody kind of said like really just like stop trying to make they, they their biggest advice was like stop trying to make sense of the weirdness just like focus on the fact that this should not and does not need to be a musical <laughs> um you've got the basic characters and storylines and so there is a lot in the final script a lot of jokes just come from like you know almost not not quite fourth wall break, breaking but just acknowledging that like like at one point, like Nicolas Cage makes a big, like he does a big song and dance and, um, and, and the, the therapist is like, well, why did that was weird? Why did you do that? He's like, I made a choice. I stuck with it, which I feel like is something he definitely said on set of this movie. Um, <laughs> so the hardest part was, you know, it was very much like a kill your darlings thing of like, oh, but I really dug into the, the dark, the darkness of a man's soul in New York and this job he hates and a life he hates. And he's just filled it with these like, you know, uh, um, superficial you know status symbols with the beautiful women and a fancy brownstone apartment and uh and all these things but but so so to try to like make sense of it i kind of had to like pull away the specifics and just kind of like let these characters kind of be their own characters in the realm of a vampire's kiss musical <laughs> um yeah that, and and that was that was very difficult because it, it but it ultimately helped it because it's like oh now this is kind of its own standalone comedy thing mm -hmm. whereas vampires kiss i don't know if they set out to make a comedy i think it's one of those where they watched the final cut and they were like let's just market this as a comedy yeah <laughs> um to try to get away with it because yeah it's just it's just so bizarre um yeah and then and then also trying to like you know so much of the movie they they there's really no question about you know what is happening in his head and what isn't like at the end of it he's clearly just talking to himself on the street and fantasizing about a therapy appointment throughout the movie like he's talking to rachel and there's just nobody there you see him scream at a mirror and he says he can't see his reflection but you can clearly see his reflection <laughs> like they didn't even like shoot it from an angle where you might not be able to see it so some of those things that they work in a film that don't work on on stage because 
you know, one, I, I didn't want to like reveal until the very end that like he had never seen Rachel, like clearly it's fake. Um, so kind of like, yeah, things that might've worked in the movie or arguably didn't even work in the movie. Yeah. Um, I can't try to like pull those things away and just kind of let it be this, uh, you know, one act kind of nonstop journey of one guy thinking he's turning into a vampire and then kind of pull the rug out from underneath it all at the end. Yeah. Um, like I say, it's, it's, it's a very strange film to make sense of. Um, yeah. Because I think as you touched on there, I don't, I personally agree with you. I don't think with this film, they intentionally tried to make a comedy. I think it's one of those films that just took on a life of its own and then when it's uh, finally hit cult status, uh, then I think the consensus could be, well, it's it's a very black comedy, but it's a comedy nonetheless. In that sort of sense, it's kind of to me like, um, uh, obviously the classic um, bad film, The Room, yes. in a sense that <laughs> with, with Tommy Wiseau, um, he was looking to make, so I think the next great American film sort of sort of itself like this kind of James Dean kind of character. Um, thought he'd made this really serious dramatical piece about relationships and betrayal and um this that, and the other um but then it, i think it's obviously years later when the film is in the public domain that he's finally um taken a step back and sort of embraced it for what it is the way the audience embraced it as well uh, so with something like this and i suppose it goes into your um i suppose your potential wider ambitions for the musical as well is uh, for, for those outside of, I suppose, like the term, the cage bubble, who <laughs> don't know about Vampire's Kiss, they haven't seen Vampire's Kiss, um, was it a concern of yours at all in how uh, you would you would sort of appeal this film and market this film to those who may, might not have any idea about it and how to make sense of this to those with no prior knowledge so before they walk into uh, to, to that theatre, to that stage? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a good question. And I think, I mean, it does have a cult status, like you said. So I think definitely, you know, if, if I put up, you know, a poster in New York that said Vampire's Kiss the Musical, there would be enough weirdos to fill a small theater <laughs> that would at least be like, yeah, we, we need to see that. I mean, I mean, there's definitely, you know, just from like the marketing side, there's definitely a market out there for weird musical parodies. They pop up all over the place in mm -hmm. New York. Um, uh, and even even in LA, there's I'm blanking on the name of the theater now, but around Halloween, somebody had sent me, um, obviously not from this year because theaters also stopped, much like comedy, but from yeah. uh, I think 2019 actually. But this theater that does a lot of musical parodies, they did a musical parody. Oops, excuse me, a musical parody of um, Stephen King's It, uh, right. specifically the the movies. Yeah, uh, yeah. if you look up uh, Stephen King's It, It the musical, it it comes up and it's. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a quick plug for that. It's all on YouTube and it's so worth watching. It's basically like act one is the them as kids, act two is them as adults. Um, and it's a jukebox musical with the first act, it's all pop music from the eighties. And then the second act is all like pop music from like the 2010s, like right. so modern, yeah. modern musical and like Pennywise sings 99 red balloons. And uh, <laughs> when Georgie, yeah, when Georgie, like at the beginning of the movie and in the book, like Georgie is like building a paper boat and goes down the sewer. And that's when you get the iconic scene of the clown biting his arm off and he sings come sail away while he's playing with a boat. And it, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so good. It's so, it's so funny. So, and then in New York, there was like a small production of um, like Showgirls, the musical and mm. like uh, things like that. So, um, 
um, the, the marketing side, you know, I feel like, and, and I even watched some of that, the Showgirls musical that was online. And even that was like, even if you don't understand the premise of Showgirls, uh, you can un- enjoy this as just a ridiculous movie um, because that movie is equally insane. One of the all time best bad movies out there. Uh, <laughs> so so I guess for, for Vampire's Kiss, I mean, one, it's got a, an insane title. Um, I think I think the major appeal is just the, the that it's called Vampire's Kiss the musical, um, but I think even if you went in if you're if you have an awful friend who says I'm taking you to this show, um, <laughs> you know there there's not a whole lot in it that is left up to like oh wait was that like I I did a good I think I did a, an okay job of like anything that you would need to know from the movie you really don't need to. Um, the whole opening song is, you know, New York City as a character. So we have all these like the cab driver and the hot dog vendor and just like uh, a Times Square Elmo. Like they all just kind of <laughs> sing about like, hey, here we are in New York. And and then every now and then somebody just does like a quick little monologue about like, hey, this is what the this is what you're you just came to see. Uh, it's it's about New York. It's the 80s. Like they kind of get you caught up on all that. And uh, and then and then even you know, things that are in the movie. Like I have a, a, a scene where Alva is being yelled at by Peter Lowe. Pretty much every time they're on stage together, it's him <laughs> yelling at her, That which is just the movie. Yeah. Every day she's just being berated. Um, and he's just like, we need to get this contract. And then just like, in case you're not clear, like you better believe I'm going to make a really big deal about this for the rest of the show. <laughs> I love I love when a show acknowledges that it's a show. I'm um, just like, I'm going to make a really big deal about this. Do you understand that I am establishing stakes for the rest of the hour? And she's like, yes, these are the stakes. I get it. I'll find a contract. So um, a lot of things like that, that just make it clear, like, no, this is really what the story is. Get on board. This is what's happening. When the vampire shows up, like, there's things like she's a vampire. Like, sometimes you just have to, and this is like a sketch comedy trope. If you want somebody to know what they're supposed to feel about this thing just have somebody say it if you want people to know like <laughs> hey here we are in new york city like in the opening credits of the movie you have the benefit of like they just show like here's new york city and it's the 80s so you can see you know you still see the the twin towers you can see the empire state building and it's like we're in new york i get it this is probably you know and we see a man in a suit in the 80s he's probably going to be an awful person <laughs> um and and in this it's just like we're in new york get on board with it um she's a vampire get on board with that uh this person her whole character is that she's looking for a contract just get on board with all of this and then um yeah so so i think that that's kind of what the appeal of the of doing it as like kind of a tongue-in-cheek musical is is you can have somebody say the quiet part out loud of just like this is if you're not sure what's happening this is what's happening <laughs> enjoy it for what it is <laughs> Yeah, I I genuinely love that. I had an opportunity to um, read through the scripts that you've made available uh, through okay. your through your social media, and I in my head I was I was sort of thinking, well, I sort of wonder how you know through uh, through the dialogue and the music how you make this understandable. But I think as you touched upon earlier, with something like this, you you just can't tone down the crazy. You can't. You have to embrace that bubble, which I, I really feel like you've done here. And there were a lot of self referential nods to this is happening strap yourselves in this is this is what's um this is what you've paid for this is what you've come for Uh, and we see um a lot of things through the perspective of um sort of the little boy as you've mentioned who is he's uh as it says in the script very keen to know if peter is getting his buck on um so so with with a lot of characters in this and um again as you mentioned um a lot of other characters are quite grounded there are level two or level three and then you've got cage peter lowe who is 
um, at a level 11 all the way over here. Um, how how is it for you to try and make a lot of characters um, sort of come come across, come alive, um, and not? Um, and I appreciate with this, obviously, Pete is going to be the attention throughout all of this. He's going to be loud. He's going to be brash. He's going to be very physical, very all over the place. Um, with the character like the, the, the little boy and uh, the company, and and of course Alva and uh, sort of Jackie, um, what was sort of the challenge for you to make sure that they weren't sort of completely drowned out? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and and for anybody who wants to, yeah, I, uh, like you said, I have the script available. So if you read through it, and like I said, there's very few blackouts and transitions. It's Peter's on stage for pretty much the entire thing. There's like one or two breaks where we see like Alva at home with her brother, and but that's really the only break that we have, um, or the like club scenes where you know he at least has a break to you know, get a drink of water backstage, whoever this <laughs> poor actor is, who's going to basically run a marathon for an hour. Um, but yeah, so, so he's going to be big. Uh, his songs are usually like him losing his mind. I kind of wrote them in a way where like the tempo can increase and he can kind of like flail his arm. I see a lot of arm action with his dancing uh, yeah. and some of these songs. Um, but, you know, like Alva, I thought was, and, and in the movie, this is also true. Like she's really the only like, realistic character in it like th those are the only scenes that i really felt like this is happening this is like mm -hmm. uh, this is this is this, this is she's the only reliable narrator she's getting frustrated at her job for good reason she has this insane boss and like you know gets a gun to protect herself from the crazies in new york which includes her boss like she's kind of doing everything you know like she calls out sick to avoid this guy like everything she does is kind of grounded um so to try to add some more groundedness to not just make her like this person that is being yelled at by her boss and to not just make it like where that's her her character you know trying to add a little bit more meat to like her talking to her brother um which it's in there in the movie a little bit and i kind of took some of that like when she confesses to her brother that like her boss assaulted her and that like that's what kind of kicks off the final uh action of the film where emilio is like going after peter he's like going to kill him for attacking his sister mm -hmm. um but even in the beginning like the first song after the opening where it's just new york explaining what the hell is going to happen right now like alva's first song is uh called uh, a girl from pelham bay um which that was a detail i pulled from the movie they make fun of her for living all the way up in the bronx uh pelham bay i've heard is very nice i don't know why they're <laughs> being a bunch of manhattan centrists here but uh you know, she she's kind of growing up poor. She lives with her family, uh, and and you know, I kind of added this stuff to her character, trying to explain like, hey, why didn't you quit sooner? And like, you know, I tried to add this this thing of like, she's trying to prove to herself that like, she can do this job. She this is her dream is to kind of work in publishing, work in literature. She's, uh, I kind of made her like have this love for reading and publishing, and she, this is like her trying to like put up with the bullshit until she's got the corner office and she yeah. has the you know the name plaque on the door and everything um for rachel i mean she's a vampire very clear motivations for a vampire uh <laughs> she's she's just clearly i mean even though like she is imaginary like her whole thing is like she shows up she's kind of this like erotic temptress uh every time like peter's about to like do something good with his life she's usually uh, and I've heard some people have like interpreted it as like, this is a metaphor for addiction. Like the second you've tried to get away from your addiction, like here comes this thing that's tempting you and bringing you back in and, yeah. you know, is, is ultimately killing you, but, but you kind of can't say no to it. Um, and, and so, you know, that's kind of, she's kind of this like, 
you know, she's trying to, I mean, and this is what vampires do. They want to make more vampires. Like they, they attack you, they drink your blood. Now there's another vampire out there. Um, and, and, she, you know, she's very much just kind of motivated by, uh, you know, lust and blood and, and everything like that. So, and then, and then at the end you kind of see like, oh, she's just a normal, like I said, just like a normal young woman in the city going out and partying and having a good time. Um, everything is very much grounded even like the people in the club scene it's like nothing nothing is weird here they're just having a good time drinking having a party and then here comes again this wrecking ball personality that kind of i really even though like theater and musical theater in particular is so at like an 11 already like they're singing and dancing it's already bizarre um like it's it's kind of easy to like make it grounded in the sense where it's like okay this person is just trying to prove herself at a job this is a vampire that's just trying to you know do what vampires do and attack people here's uh you know even frank heatherton who's the guy who wrote the short story that they're looking for the contract for like he only has like a brief part in it but all he's trying to do is like you know he he needs the contract but he even like calls up he's like hey it's not a big deal like he's he's just a regular normal guy he's like (laughs) i'm just writing my short fiction all the like new york characters even though they are these like cliche like eh, you know new york come here forget about it like they're all kind of like that type of joe pesci type of voice um they're all just they're all just trying to do their jobs like they're you know it is the hustle and bustle of the city the cab driver's just trying to get you where you need to go and the Times square elmo's just trying to you know make a buck in Times square and and hot dog vendor just like they're all just doing what their jobs um and the therapist even whether and whether whether she's real or not um that's that's up for debate uh but you know she's trying the best she can to give therapy to this emotionally stunted man and and for the most part in the musical up until the very end where where just like in the movie she's like oh what a coincidence i have this woman who has the same problems of you which that's a huge hip violation you can't be telling <laughs> about your other patients um yeah but you know here she comes and here comes this little boy who honestly probably the only character who's as crazy as peter lowe is the little boy who just shows up asks if yeah just asks like hey you gonna get your fuck on cool and then and then leaves <laughs> and then they start a little family at the end and that's uh yeah so i i mean it's it's very easy to just make it grounded because you know everybody is like i said kind of an archetype like here's the overworked uh office employee here's this like lusty you know sexy woman who's just kind of like this temptress like that's very much a trope here's uh you know the the very uh almost maternal and calm uh therapist like those are all like pretty easy archetypes and then here's a guy who is apparently like a very successful literary agent who acts not at all like a successful literary agent it's just like this is the (laughs) raving lunatic on the street um so so honestly like making it making everybody else grounded was kind of easy compared to just when you compare it to Nicolas Cage like I feel I've and even watching the movie it's like anytime somebody says something remotely normal like seeing Alva like I don't want to go to work because my boss is crazy it's like finally a normal emotion a normal (laughs) response to something um but that actually kind of made it fun because you know you can kind of like play into the cliches and the the archetypes of who these people probably are um, because all it does is set it up it sets up some like base reality for then you know Nicolas Cage to come in and be insane and and it it also kind of balances it out even when uh, you know Alva and her brother are having a very serious conversation it's like oh yeah this this is real like that and that's kind of what I wanted to be is like this is a man who's crazy he is actually being this awful to Alva. He does attack her uh, and, 
and and then you know it actually has some like real life consequences that that build up at the end yes i mean uh, reading the script it was something i also noticed as well the um the consequences sort of build up and with um the dynamic between peter and alva and um, alva god bless her as you've said the only normal person in the film um, and i think it speaks to god bless uh working unions in today's day and age <laughs> otherwise that would have been a very different film if that was um if that was made today um and also enjoyed like the other sort of nods and touches the cockroach of course uh yep. sort of in in the hot dog um obviously with this being of course a musical um when you're watching the film through, um, was it easy for you to identify parts of the film? It's like, well, this deserves its own song. This can warrant uh, a musical piece here. And sort of on the back of that, what was your favorite of the uh, musical um, pieces uh, with your demos available uh, through social media as well? Uh, what was your favorite to write? Yeah, there. I mean, there are some scenes in there where it's like, oh, clearly this needs to be a musical number. Um, I mean, the the whole point of of a musical is, you know, it's not just a play with some songs. Some some are, and sometimes they do that well. Where like, you know, like a, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, but one where like maybe the music is part of the show. Like it's about a band or a musician. It's like they're just playing the song because this is a musician playing a song. But for the most part, where it's like an actual like dramatic piece with music, the music should move the story forward, and it should have like a point in there. So. Um, so there were a lot of, I mean, there were some things like the little boy upstairs, he's not exactly moving the plot across. It's just, I want this little boy to have his own number where he just sings about how he's the neighborhood pervert and likes watching people <laughs> have sex in their, you know, in the apartment building. Um, but then, you know, things like, uh, you know, the, the, the misfiled scene where for whatever reason, and that's why, like, you know, even though this is supposed to be a story about a man who becomes a vampire, at least in his head, really, the the movie is about a man looking for a file <laughs> in a filing cabinet that he can't find. And you really, like, every every therapy session kind of gets more and more erratic as he's getting madder and madder about this file that Alva can't find. And then it blows up in the, you know, A, B, C, D, like, doing the alphabet. Mm -hmm. And then the Mick Jagger dance moves and everything. So, like, I was like, well, obviously there needs to be like this. And that's also like the scene, even if you don't know this movie, you've either seen it in the Nicolas Cage loses his shit or you've just, somebody has sent you just that clip out of context. <laughs> um, so things like that, I was like, well, that's clearly gotta be a number. Um, when he does become a vampire, there clearly needs to be a song called I'm a vampire yeah. where he's running around yelling, I'm a vampire. Um, and so, so yeah, so uh, honestly, in those two songs, probably the most fun uh to write but the i'm a vampire was the one that like like i knew that that had to be a song i knew it had to be called i'm a vampire because i'm gonna have him <laughs> yell i'm a vampire over and over and over again um and, and also like just where it kind of came in the story it was a really fun almost like turning point because it's like right after you know things kind of stop being cute and he legitimately you know attacks assaults in the you know, just like in the movie, like he, until she pulls out the gun, like she's very, very close to being raped in the film. And it's very, yeah. kind of, it's very horrific. And it, it, in the movie, it happens twice. And in the first draft of this, I actually had both of those moments in the show. And like, my friend was like, it's man, it's too much. Like, it, it's like too much of a heel turn. And I was like, that's very fair. And I, and, and that was when I kind of like combined that. And it's like, you know, here's this very terrifying scuffle. Her dress is getting ripped. She manages to get the gun. The gun has blanks in it. Uh, mm -hmm. but he doesn't know that. And she kind of like, you know, gets him scared away from that. So 
Uh, and that's, you know, kind of like in the movie, like he tries to kill himself with the gun, but they're blanks. He thinks he's immortal. He runs into the bathroom and just like having that final moment of like, I can't see myself in the mirror. <laughs> um, and, and I, that, that was, I, I, I don't, I don't know if it was just, I think it was just because of like the amount of story that had to be crammed in there where like, he's, he's accepting that he's become a vampire. He's running around and like, he eats a cockroach, he eats a pigeon, he's uh, buying the vampire teeth and you kind of like get to see him accept that he's a vampire and also like transform into a vampire yeah. with like, he's gripping his neck, he's putting in the fake teeth, even though he can't sing with them, which is a more of a logistical thing I realized like hey we can't you can't you can barely talk with those plastic <laughs> teeth in there so I'll just write it in as a joke that he can't sing with them but yeah um so yeah so that that one piece was probably my favorite one just because it had to cram in so much uh story in there um a close second would be going batty which is when he first is telling Dr. Glazer that he was aroused by the bat that came in and it's just kind of this like fun little rock and roll bit of him running around with what I imagine to be the company waving around fake bats, like just in like, you know, dressed in all black, like <laughs> lycra suits with these like rubber bats flapping around. Um, um, but yeah, but no, I, I'm a vampire was, was definitely my favorite. And also like the tone of the music, I really wanted it to be like kind of a small, like, you know, rock combo type of thing. Like I kind of imagine it as like a very like Alice Coopery, like at his most glam rock phases where yeah. it's just this like kind of like dark heavy metal tones but also with these like you know kind of like tap dancey musical numbers even some of the like jim steinman meatloaf collaboration mm. type of things um but i'm a vampire kind of hits all those boxes where it's like it's big it's just peter lowe singing so it's like it's of course it's going to be big and it's like i added these like almost shakespearean like monologue parts at the beginning and end of it um where he and he's destroying the set and flipping the coffin like the the couch over turning it into a coffin and you know all the while there's kind of like this like very rock alice coopery type of guitar riff so kind of thinking about that that's that's like this is the ideal song like, this is the song that like this was kind of building up to <laughs> i love that i mean personally one of my favorites from the demos i listened to was uh misfiled um, yeah. more from a, a very sort of biased perspective because I just love that scene in the film because who else yeah. has uh, nailed the alphabet like that <laughs> performance like there and I think ever since that now in my head I'm so ingrained with Cage um, it's, it's what me and a, a sort of another Cage podcast have basically called Cage Home Syndrome we've spent so much <laughs> time with him that we're basically very sympathetic to him um, mm -hmm. in the same way when Jim Carrey taught us all the spell like because um this is this is how i i personally do the alphabet now um going through the script as well that's also something you touched on with uh, the peter ronalva scene obviously in the film uh the very horrific moment where he he does turn he violates uh, i did notice in the script that that was taken out to be more of a scuffle and sort of win the en ending of your musical as well um obviously in the film very definitively he takes um a stake to the heart he dies that's how the film finishes off um with yours it seems to be a bit more um and of course correct me if i'm wrong a bit more ambiguous um because we have the sort of finale of him singing about being alone um so with your sort of interpretation of uh the film as to a musical uh, was there um a necessity um with some parts against others to make amendments or just for the, for the sake of the musical were there some things that just needed to change uh and with your overall view of the film and its ending did you find that it worked better to be i suppose less definitive and uh less um 
uh, less of a statement with a death at the end as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely, you know, watching the movie and, you know, the ending, I, I knew I wanted it, like, it should build up to, um, you know, Alva gets Emilio involved and Emilio's trying to, you know, kill this guy. But there, there was a line in this, like, fantasy moment at the end of the movie where he says, like, like he meets Sharon. He's like, oh, let's go out on a date. Oh, by the way, I, uh, I killed a girl at the club last night uh, while I was a vampire. It's a long story. Also, I, uh, I raped a girl at the office and, and Dr. Glazer's like, oh, that's, that's okay. And I'm like, no, it's not. But like, of course, like he's <laughs> yeah, justifying yeah. it. Like in, in the movie it works. Cause it's like, it's in his head and it's like, yeah, yeah. of course that's not okay. Um, and we also know in the movie that like, no, he really did murder this girl. Like it's on the front page of the paper. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's no, and, and clearly Alva has gotten Emilio involved. Like clearly the awful stuff like did happen. Um, so, and I kind of wanted to see both of those scenes come together. Um, but also when watching it, like, even though Peter Lowe, there's no reason to sympathize with him because he clearly is a monster. Yeah. Um, I even put it in the, uh, you know, after the I'm a vampire scene, there's like, you know, they're back at the club, he kills a girl. And uh, there's like this moment where like Emilio and Peter Lowe are kind of on opposite sides of the stage, kind of singing the same song where like Emilio's like, going to get revenge on Peter for attacking his sister and Peter's kind of accepted that like oh he, I am the villain of this story and it's like yeah mm. by the end it's like there's no question like you're the bad guy in in this story about you um but also like you know like I said this is a guy who's just like he he just see, he's very lonely he lives alone he has very shallow relationships um and I thought that like more than anything like what's sadder and he also like he wants to be killed yeah. in the movie so it's like yeah. you know it's it's kind of like when when somebody is like preferring death to like a life in prison sentence when they're like a true monster and it's like no you murdered 50 people like you are going to like that's it's not a punishment to release you from whatever this is <laughs> so yeah. so that was a big yeah. thing it's like i i honestly i think it's a bigger punishment to not see him get what he wants which is you know to be killed by somebody and he mm. you know in the movie famously like he's running around to real new yorkers who don't know who nicholas cage is or that this is a movie yes, and if they yeah. do know nicholas cage they don't recognize him because he's covered in blood and dirt and everything <laughs> and he's just like begging people on the street to like stab him with this wooden plank um and so i, I put a little bit of that in the musical where he's like yelling at the audience like begging people in the audience to kill him um so so I didn't think it was I didn't think it was good to have him get what he wants, but I did want him to like. What's worse is that even though everything has now worked out, it's not real. He is ultimately alone. And I, the first line of the of the movie is him covered in blood, holding the stake, like basically how he looks at the end of the movie, um, and he's alone on stage, just like I'm having a bit of a day. And he goes into therapy, and then New York, you know, we we meet all the crazy characters in New York, um, and I really wanted it to kind of be bookended by, you know. And maybe it's maybe it comes across as like it's ambiguous. Like, was any of this real, or was it just this man on the street who's alone? Um, but I have it like just him in a spotlight at the beginning. He's totally alone. He's covered in blood. And then at the very end, even though there's this nice, happy, like everything's working out. You've got your family. You found love. You've got you found your contract. The janitor finds the contract in the trash. It all <laughs> works out. Everybody's happy. And then the lights go out again, and it's just him alone on stage in the spotlight holding the plank and he's just totally alone it's kind of sad and it, um you know it's it, I, i'm hoping that if we do it right with like lighting effects it'll just be very jarring to watch it as like 
here it's all working out. And, and while the song is happening, like everybody in the show is singing with him about how great everything has worked out. Everything's coming up Peter Lowe. And then like Alva and Emilio come in from one side and Emilio's like got the crowbar and going to beat him up. And Rachel, who's basically been also <laughs> attacked by him at the club, uh, like has called the cops and the cops are after him. And you clearly see like he's about to get his comeuppance. He's either going to be beat to death or he's going to get arrested or both. Um, and then the lights just kind of go out and he's just kind of alone. So um, so I wanted to show that like he is going to face consequences from this. But the, the thing that I think stood out to me the most is that at the end of it, he, he knows he's a monster. He wants to be killed and he doesn't get it. So I didn't want him to get that release that he seems to want, which is, <laughs> that's kind of the, the heady pretentious way of, of, of thinking about it. But, um, but that was kind of like, I, it, it also, I felt like it was, it's, it's also a thing where it's like, I can't have this guy like be a monster and like attacking people the way he's attacking them. And then, you know, get what he wants or, or be relieved at the end the way he is in the movie where he's like almost smiling when he finally gets to be killed it's like no this you know this is this is a a serial you know murderer serial rapist like yes no he's we have to show that like he's about to be arrested or beat up or both and and ultimately he's just going to be alone with these feelings forever <laughs> and i think um you know, my personal takeaway was it definitely served the story better to be um, a bit more ambiguous, not to give him what he wanted. Um, but, but with that said, and sort of just look at, I suppose, wrapping up now, so two questions really to wrap up from me. Um, one, in terms of the musical, uh, what are the next steps? You know, where does it go from here? And two, perhaps the most pressing question, uh, does Nicolas Cage know that this <laughs> exists and that it's out there? Yeah, so uh, I can answer the second question first. No, he does not. <laughs> I don't think he knows. Um, however, Maria uh, Conchita Alonso, who plays Alva, is aware of it because oh. she has re she has retweeted it. Um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, she's gone a, a bit nuts politically in the years since. Yeah. Um, in, in 2016, she was definitely, I guess, one of those people who was like, there's no difference between Trump and Hillary Clinton. And it's like, Ooh, like <laughs> we're, we're seeing the effects of, of that. And mm -hmm. I think she was like, you know, rooting for third party candidates like Jill Stein at the time, which, Hey, I would love it if we had a third option, but it's like not the year for it. And I guess, <laughs> I guess even recently uh, someone like showed me that she's started to like put out stuff about like the rigged election and all these like conspiracy theories. And so, yeah. um, but she is aware of the, of the show. And I did let her know like, Hey, if you want to be Alva, like if you want to be a 60 year old Alva, great. <laughs> like <laughs> politics aside, let's reach across the aisle. Sure. Um, I also tried to, uh, make Jennifer Beals aware of it, but she has not retweeted it or acknowledged any of the things I have tagged her in. <laughs> um, I, I tagged both Jennifer Beals and Maria Alonso in any posts I made about like, here's a song that Rachel sings or here's a song that Alva sings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Maria enjoyed it. I think she really enjoyed the Alva song. Um, and I think, and, and she at least enough to retweet it. But um, Nicolas Cage, very little social media presence. Yes. It turns out he's, he doesn't seem to be on Twitter. Um, I don't know who to email it to um I, I assume if i just send it to any castle it there's a good chance of it getting to him i know he has a bit of a of a of a castle addiction yes um 
So I think, you know, if, if I mail it to just any castle in the world, there's a, a good chance. If it doesn't get to him, it'll get to Sting. And I hope that Sting will then forward it to <laughs> Nicolas Cage. Um, but for the other questions, so right now, like theater and live performance in general is kind of on hold. Um, so really what I kind of want to do with it is, I mean, I wrote this, the whole script kind of in a, one month of just manic writing of just like, you know, putting everything into it. And I, every now and then I'll think of a new, of something that might be better. So every time I think of something, I update the script. Um, if you're reading the script in the Google Drive link that I have on my Twitter right now, trust that it is the most recent update of it because every time I update the script, I update it on there for the fans to see it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of, I'll keep tweaking dialogue, keep tweaking songs here and there. Um, I, one thing I still need to do, I have all these demo tracks and like I have the lyrics written and I have, you know, the, the vague musical ideas captured, but I haven't actually sat down and like written out the music for it yet. Um, so I, I still need to do that part. That's, that's on the more like back end creative side of things. Um, but I would love to, you know, if 2021 or more likely, you know, early 2022 as things really are, are open again and people, you know, are able to come out safely. Um, I have no hurry to be in a theater, like I said, but once it's safe to do it and people feel safe and, you know, we're vaccinated or that, you know, there's everybody, it's been eradicated and people can be safely out there. I would love to get in New York, just like a small black box theater where we can really, um, you know, lean into the experimental theater nature of a show like this. Um, there, there's plenty of great like comedy theaters and, and small black box theaters for exactly this type of weird thing. Um, and hopefully I can get some people to come out and see it and maybe build up some momentum, get some people to like see it and review it and get some videos that I can send around. I would love to send it to like larger theater festivals, even uh, like a dream of mine has been to do something weird like this for like the Edinburgh festival, Oh yeah, um, which I've never been to. And, uh, I've been to Edinburgh, but not for the festival. And one, I would just love to spend a month in that city. But two, uh, from what I've heard, uh, you know, that is the exact type of scene where people love this kind of weird stuff. <laughs> um, it, it, it does seem like the UK has a much bigger appetite for weird stuff like this. Whereas in the US, it's kind of like, what am I looking at? And um, I, I think it's just the, the sense of humor is not nearly as um, weird and open. There's definitely a, a market for it. And I think that there will be enough people that have seen Vampire's Kiss and will appreciate it that they'll enjoy it here. But but definitely a dream is to like take it to a, a larger theater festival or a larger fringe festival where people are like, I'm in the mood for seeing something weird. Yeah. Um, because I mean, if you want to bring it around full circle, like this is written by someone who is into weird stuff as a kid, and it's meant for other people that were into weird stuff as a kid. Um, and so, so that's kind of the, the dream is to, to show it. And kind of like the American Psycho musical, if I can just get the people that want to see it to see it, and then that's it, like, great. This is very specific. I don't think it's going to be the next big hit Broadway musical, uh, but I do think it will appeal to a very specific group of people and I hope I get to show it to him someday um, and in the meantime I hope people you know read it online and at least listen to the songs and enjoy it enough to to care about what happens to it next <laughs> well I definitely hope so I hope it hits the ground running and I hope it finds an audience uh, mentioning the Edinburgh Fringe Festival um, I went there a few years ago and can say pretty confidently this is the kind of thing that <laughs> would absolutely kill there a few years ago you might have heard of it they had um Elvis, the Elvis Dead, which was basically a one-man reenactment of Evil Dead 2, but to the music of Elvis. That, oh my God. <laughs> um, that got um, a load of attention and awards. And if um, you know that can go into great things, then I have no doubt in my mind 
that Vampire's Kiss the Musical um, would go on to wonderful, wonderful things over here. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, whatever happens on my side of the pond with Brexit doesn't completely mm. uh, cut us off uh, from a musical <laughs> like this that needs to be seen. Um, but there's also a friend of mine who lives in Glastonbury. Uh, Cage is quite famously a big Anglophile. He claims to know whereabouts he lives. So if I can reach out, get some feelers and see if we can get something posted through his letterbox, Yep. <laughs> you know, I'll I'll uh, I'll be your man on the ground over here. Please do. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll do what I can to make this vision come to fruition because um, Thank you. After this fascinating chat and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with me. Um I need this in my life. I need this to happen. <laughs> I need to see it. I'm very excited for it. Uh, but with that said, it's sort of come to an end. Um once again, Kevin Frolix, thank you so much. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Where we can we find uh, the scripts and the demos as well? Yeah, so uh, honestly, best way to keep in touch with anything I'm doing uh, is on uh, Twitter or Instagram. It's just my name, at Kevin Frolix, K-E-V-I-N-F-R-O-L-E-I-K-S. Um, and on both of those things, the pinned website link in my, like, Twitter and Instagram bio is just a Google Drive folder. It's got the script. It's got the demo tracks for 13 of the songs. I think the script actually calls for like 18 or 19 songs, but I, I recorded demos of 13 of them. Um, and you can listen to all of them in there. You can also see a fun little poster that I made with Nicolas Cage with Vampire Teeth in the phone booth in the movie. Um, but yeah, the script, the demos, they're all in there. You don't got to pay nothing for it. Just read it, enjoy it. If you do, please like share it with people that you know if you happen to know where Nicolas Cage lives <laughs> again yeah slide it through the mailbox if he's got one of those ones on like the front door just throw it in there with the rest of the bills I've heard he's got a lot of bills to pay he might have to sell that castle to pay for it but yeah Twitter and Instagram at Kevin Frolix and the the pinned or the, the link and the pinned post on Twitter is the the folder where you can read this amazing well again thank you for a genuinely fascinating and really entertaining conversation I've uh, loved having you on kevin it's been an absolute pleasure uh hope to catch you again in the future and, and can't wait to see the updates of what happens next with vampires kiss the musical uh, but thank you again for listening all you dear listeners out there hope to see you in the next one but until then keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do take care bye-bye